Leviticus chapter 3. We'll start at the first verse. We're going to work our way right on through it. If your offering is a fellowship offering, and you offer an animal from the herd, whether male or female, you are to present before the Lord an animal without defect. You are to lay your hand on the head of your offering and slaughter it at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall splash the blood against the sides of the altar. From the fellowship offering, you are to bring a food offering to the Lord, the internal organs and all the fat that is connected to them, both kidneys with the fat on them near the loins, and the long lobe of the liver, which you will remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's sons are to burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering that is lying on the burning wood. It is a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. If you offer an animal from the flock as a fellowship offering to the Lord, you are to offer a male or female without defect. If you offer a lamb, you are to present it before the Lord. Lay your hand on its head and slaughter it from the, in front of the tent of meeting. Then Aaron's sons shall, spl- shall splash its blood against the sides of the altar. From the fellowship offering, you are to bring a food offering to the Lord. It's fat, the entire fat tail cut off close to the backbone, the internal organs, and all the fat that is connected to them, both kidneys with the fat on them near the loins, and the long lobe of the liver, which you will remove with the kidneys. The priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering presented to the Lord. If your offering is a goat, you are to present it before the Lord, lay your hand on its head, and slaughter it in front of the tent of of meeting. Then Aaron's sons shall splash its blood against the sides of the altar. From what you offer, you are to present this food offering to the Lord, the internal organs, and all the fat that is connected to them, both kidneys with the fat on them near the loins, and the long lobe of the liver, which you shall remove with the kidneys. The priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering, a pleasing aroma. All the fat is the Lord's. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Wherever you live, you must not eat any fat or any blood. I'm sure it's very clear where I'm going with this one this morning. (laughs) Now, as we... uh, As we've been walking through the book of Leviticus in chapter 1 and chapter 2, we were introduced to two different kinds of sacrifices. We were introduced to the burnt offering in chapter 1, and we were introduced to the cereal or the grain offering in chapter 2. Today we get into a third type of offering that is being given. And if you look at the the heading over uh, chapter 3, you see that it's called the fellowship offering. Now on the surface, the fellowship offering looks a lot like the first two. They almost read the exact same. It's kind of getting monotonous at this point in terms of our reading. And this is why people give it up in their, right about now, in their, I'm going to read through the Bible through the year, New Year's resolutions, right? They get to this point, they're like, oh my goodness, and they stop. Now, despite the fact that it reads very similarly, let's try to connect some dots and let's look at both the similarities and the differences. When we look at the similarities, we're primarily comparing it to chapter one with the burnt offering because it deals with an animal, correct? We're not looking at chapter 2 with the cereal offering, although we still get that same language of it is a food offering to the Lord or an aroma pleasing to the Lord. We still have that rhythm happening in chapter 3, but it's very clearly connected to chapter 1 because it's a burnt offering. And so, 
On the surface, it looks the same because you've got a person who brings forward an animal, and it's either from the herd or the flock. They bring the animal into the very front portion of the tabernacle, out in that outer courtyard, and as they enter into the tabernacle, they come face to face with the altar of the burnt offering, which is near the entrance. Once they are there with their sacrifice, they take their hands and they place their hand on the animal, just like in chapter 1, as a way of symbolizing their connection to this animal. It is saying, I am identified with this animal, or this animal is going to be a vicarious substitute for me in this act of worship, right? So that happens. The person then kills the animal. They slaughter the animal there. And no, it is the person who slaughters the animal. It is not the priest in this case. After the animal is slaughtered, the priest then takes the blood, splatters it on the offering, or on the altar. And this is, like I said, this, compare this to chapter 1, it's almost the same. But these are as far as the similarities go. Now we're going to start getting into some of the differences. So if you've got your Bible still open, look at Leviticus chapter 1, verse 2. Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. Now jump to chapter 2, verse 1. When anyone brings a grain offering to the Lord, their offering is to be of the finest flour. Now go to chapter 3, verse 1. If your offering is a fellowship offering, so you catch how right, right at the beginning, chapter 3 is very different than the first two chapters. The first two chapters begin with the word when. And this implies then that at some point an Israelite is going to make this sacrifice, this offering, when you do this. Not if, when. There's no condition. So it, at some point an Israelite is going to bring something to the, to the, offer, or the, the altar of burnt offering, offering, whether that be an animal or whether it be grain, and they are going to uh, consecrate them whole, their whole selves so that they can enter into the presence of God, as we've talked about in, chapter, er, in the previous sermons. Right? This is a central part. Chapters 1 and 2 are central part to what it means to be an Israelite and what it means to worship God at the tabernacle when you do this. But chapter 3 shifts, if. And the reason is, the, the reason that it shifts is, is, is to, to, it gets at an idea that we've already talked about in previous sermons. We've talked about this in saying that when we think of sacrifices, that we typically see them as being only for the atonement of sins. Right? That there's this gulf between us and God that there is a debt of sin that has to be paid, and the sacrifice is what does that. And it's absolutely true that sacrifices were used in this manner, but it's not their sole purpose. And we got that a little bit in chapter 1, but there's this, still this atonement piece to that, but it was about consecrating the whole self to a person. Here in chapter 3, again, this one it, it has, an, it has a connotation of there being some forgiveness that's happening, or that the sacrifice is being given to atone for sins, or or even that the animal is some sort of substitute in the atonement process. But that's not its primary purpose here. This offering isn't primarily about asking for forgiveness. This, this is about something joyful, actually. You see, chapter 3 introduces us to a subset 
of offerings underneath the broader category of burnt offerings. So if chapter 1 is like the penultimate offering in which an entire life is being, being offered to God or being consecrated to God, then we can look underneath that broad category and see some subcategories that deal more specifically with the life of the worshiper. Right? So if the burnt offering of chapter 1 is about the whole person, we could say that chapter 3 then is about a specific part of this person's life. Okay? So the very first difference that we see between chapter 3 and chapter 1, or the fellowship offering and the burnt offering, is this idea that it's an if, and it's a subset of chapter 1. What's happening in chapter 3 is a subset. It's a kind of burnt offering, but it's not exactly what is described. Now we can begin to look at some of the more ritualistic differences or the liturgical differences between the two sacrifices. In the burnt offering of chapter 1, it had to be a male that was brought forward without defect. In chapter 3, we still want an animal that is without defect, but this time it can be either male or female. It is not gender specific. So that's one difference. The next difference is that after the priest splatters the blood on the side of the altar, rather than taking the whole animal and carving it up and placing the whole animal up on the offering to be burnt, they begin to uh, be more specific in the parts that are placed on the offering. So we have all of the organs, the fat that's around the organs. Uh, We've got the kidneys, the fat that's uh, around the liver, and then the long lobe of the liver, which is actually, I didn't even know that this existed, but here's your Latin name for the day. It's lobus cauditus. Lobus cauditus is what's caught off the backside of the liver, and it's placed up on the altar to be burned. With the sheep, then, we also get the, the fat around the fat tail, whatever that is. It's something along the backbone. It's a very fatty piece of, it's actually meat back there, right? And what's actually happening here, and there's some differences that I found, or some, some conversation among scholars about this fat. Some say that it is strictly just fat. But some say that when you look in the Old Testament, you see that fat is used as a term to refer to the choicest fruits, right? So even grain, there's the fat of the grain that is offered. So it's the best grain, the first fruits, the, 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 the finest. And so some actually say that when we're talking about fat here by the kidneys or the fat of the tail or the fat along the intestines, that it could include the fat, which would be very rich, very very nutrient-dense, but it also could be like the tenderloins, right? The choicest cuts of meat, right? And so the idea here is that that which is the most select is being given to God as a way of honoring God. Just as when somebody of prominence comes into your home and you want to show them honor and respect by setting out your finest china or your best, the best meal that you can make or the finest wine or whatever it is, so when you are offering something to God, you're going to give him the best. Now what's fascinating here is the role that kidneys play. Like, we've got the lobe of the liver. That kept showing up. But what's interesting to me is the kidneys. And I'll tell you why the kidneys is is interesting. The kidneys is interesting because in the mind of the ancients, the kidneys was the center of a person's being. It's the seat of emotions. It's the seat of thoughts and, and life itself. This is different than us. For us, it's the heart. 
So when I say, I love my wife with my whole heart, you understand that I'm not specifically talking about the thing that's beating in my chest, but you understand I'm talking about like my whole being with all of who I am. All of this, is, all, all of my, my, my thoughts, my emotions are caught up in my devotion to my wife. But the ancients would never have said, I love my spouse or I love God with my whole heart. They would have said, I love you with both of my kidneys make Valentine's cards really weird coming out of there. Like, it's just two, two kidneys hanging out there, right? And everybody would, we wouldn't get candy hearts, we'd just get kidney beans, right? Like, it's just delicious. Now, related to the kidneys is this command that happens at the very end of chapter 3 when we're told that, we should, uh, that, that they will not eat blood. They should never eat blood. And the reason is, is that both the blood and the kidneys are connected to the life of the individual. Whereas the kidneys was the seat of emotions and thoughts and very life itself, blood is, is the force that keeps a thing alive, right? When the blood is contained in the body, you live. When it drains out, you die. And so these two things that symbolize life, kidneys and blood, they're not for human consumption. They belong only to the Lord, for all of life comes from God. Therefore, God is the only one who deserves to consume kidneys and blood. Now, once the kidneys and the fat had been burned, then the rest of the animal would actually be roasted or cooked, right? And what we'll see in chapter 7 in a couple of weeks is that the priest would often, or the priest would be given a portion of what was cooked, but then the rest would go back to the worshiper who brought forward the animal. And so now, after the priest has done their work, that individual has a whole, or mostly whole, roasted goat, lamb, or cow. Now, there's one other difference here. In chapter one, there was a, a it was something. If you are a, uh, if you were poorer and you couldn't prov- uh, afford a lamb, goat, or bull, you could offer a pigeon or a dove. There's no pigeon or dove in the fellowship offering. No birds. It has to be a big animal. And so now that you've got this big animal all cooked up, what do you do? You have a party. You do exactly what we do. And you begin to invite people to join you to, be, to eat this because it's got to be eaten in the sanctuary. You can't take it home. You can't, you're not going to be able to save it for later. There's no refrigerators. You've got to eat it right there, right now. And because you've got a whole lamb or a goat, I mean, at that, if your family's big, maybe you have just your whole family there. But if you've got a cow, if you've just roasted an entire, like think of how many people show up at a pig roast. But now you've got a cow. You begin to invite your friends and your family members and your relatives and your distant relatives and your brother's second cousin, or that would be your second cousin as well, your mother's second cousin, you invite them all. Maybe you invite people from your, your uh, clan or your tribe as well. You get as many people together to share in this meal, hence the word fellowship offering. Now, the word to describe in the, in the Hebrew here, the word to describe this, if you want to, oh, all right, we're fighting each other, aren't we? The word to describe this is the word selamim. So if you were to look in the Hebrew, it would be a selamim offering. Now the word selamim has this root word of salem. And salem is connected to other words. It's connected to, you probably saw them already, shalom, which equals peace, or this salem 
it's Hebrew, it's weird, but it's salem, and it equals whole or sound. Which is why if you were to go through different versions of the English Bible and you would look at the headings over chapter 3, you would see primarily three different headings given to this offering. One is the fellowship offering, like the NIV. Another is the peace offering. Or the third one is the well-being offering. Now these names aren't just random. Remember what we've talked about in terms of ritual. That ritual is a series of activities done to achieve a particular goal, right? So you have a series of activities in the morning to achieve the goal of being ready to go to work or ready to get the whole family off to church or whatever it might be, right? So we have rituals in all different areas of our lives. And if we examine ritual and what's being done, it'll oftentimes give, oftentimes give us the purpose Like, if we don't understand what is the goal of this or what are they trying to achieve, one of the ways to do that is to critically examine the different parts of the ritual and begin to say, okay, this is pointing in this direction. This is leading us to this. And we can begin to make some pretty educated guesses about what the goal is. And so if we look at what's happening here in this ritual, an individual bring forward, brings forward an animal. Some of the parts go to the Lord. Some of the parts end up with a priest. But the majority of it ends up with the individual and all of their friends and all of their family members sitting around a table. Now the purpose of the offering begins to be a little bit more clear. Because family members and friends, tribe members, they've got a certain level of commitment to one another, Right? And many times they've covenanted together. And now they're coming together around a table to celebrate that, to celebrate life, to celebrate the relationship that they have with one another, the commitments they made, the ways that they've lived into those commitments. And they do all of this very clearly in the presence of God. They are doing it in the sanctuary. They have just offered the kidneys and the fat and all the organs and the choicest meats to the Lord, they know that they are in the presence of God. And so they are recognizing that God has brought about something wonderful in their lives, something that is worthy of thanksgiving. I, I think the closest, the closest thing we have to this is a wedding and a reception. Right? We gather together to worship God, to recognize what God has done in two individuals' lives, the way in which God has brought them together, the way in which God has grown a love between them, the way in which they have now committed to do life together. And we do this in the presence of God, recognizing that every good and perfect gift comes from God. And then after having worshiped and celebrated in the presence of God, we now go to some place and we eat and we drink and we celebrate the good thing that God has brought about. We celebrate love and fidelity and we toast the past and we hope in the future and we sing and we dance and we pray for the well-being of the couple and we pray that peace would descend upon their home. I think this is the way that we have to think about this particular offering. All of that is wrapped up in what's happening here. This is clearly one of those sacrifices that we've got to abandon our assumptions of what it's about. It's not just about asking for forgiveness. It's not about solving some problem between us and God. So often, this is what I think that we assume about sacrifices, that there's some problem between us and God, therefore we have to offer a sacrifice to solve that problem. 
But this isn't about solving a problem. This is about thanksgiving. It's about gratitude for what is good between us and God and each other. How much, how much of our relationship with God, I think, I, let me preface with this. I think, that, I think we have to stop here and just ask ourselves a, a, a really deep reflective question. How much of our relationship with God is focused on having God solve some problem in our life versus how much of our relationship with God is simply the pursuit of God? And, and, and a good way to, to access the answer to that is to look at our prayer life, right? How much of our time is spent asking God to solve something, to fix something in our life, rather than simply pursuing communion with God? If I were to examine my prayers, I would have to admit that they are primarily dominated by fixing God, forgive me my sins, heal me, help me, grant me this, make clear that, open a door, close a window. It's all about solving problems. Our biggest problem has already been solved by Jesus Christ. The separation that we experience between us and God because of our sin has been dealt with once and for all. The problem that is the dividing wall or what was the dividing wall between us and Jesus has come down. Our sin, your sin, is no longer a problem. Yes, it still exists. Yes, you still experience the consequences of it. It still trips you up. It is still very much real. It is something that you have to confess and repent of. But it is no longer a problem that gets in the way of your relationship with God. It is no longer something that drives a wedge between you such that you cannot enter the presence of God. Christ on the cross, once and for all, dealt with the problem of your sin, dealt with my sin, so that now all of us can dwell with God. There is nothing that keeps us outside of the presence of God. But rather, we are all welcomed in. And so the, the major problem that we're, we're, we're longing to have God fix, that closeness, that intimacy, that question of how can humans dwell with God, that has already been solved. That has been dealt with. It's over. And in a few moments, we're going to come and we're going to gather around the table. In Protestant circles, this is called the Lord's Supper. Or maybe you grew up in it and it was referred to as communion. Which sounds a lot like fellowship. In more liturgical circles, uh, this gathering around the table was called the Eucharist. The Eucharist is a Greek word which means thanksgiving. And Orthodox theologian Alexander Schmemann, which is just a fun word to say, Schmemann. Alexander Schmemann said that Eucharist is the entrance of the joy into the jo- or entrance of the church into the joy of the Lord. When we come to the table as a church, we enter into the presence or, and into the joy of Jesus. When we come to the table, we are gathering around the ultimate reality 
We are gathering around what defines our relationships with one another. We're gathering around the thing that binds us to the Lord and to each other. When we gather around this table, we gather with friends and family, brothers and sisters who have covenanted with one another in our pursuit of God. This table represents our wholeness. This table is a point at which we come together because of thanksgiving for all that God has done for us. The problem has been fixed. It's been solved. And everything that we begin to experience in life now comes from God's graciousness, from his love, from his ever ever-growing mercy towards us as God continues to shower blessing upon blessing upon us. And so prayers, yes, there are times in which we ought to pray that God would help us and that's right and that is okay to do it. But, but more than that, what if our prayers became dominated by gratitude for all that God has already given us? What if we began to recognize the salvation over and over and over again, that this gospel story that we know and we love so much is a story that we tell ourselves again and again because it is the one that matters the most. It is the one that brings us together with Jesus or through Jesus and God the Father. We now enter into the presence of the loving Father because of Christ. We dwell with God, or maybe better yet, God dwells with us because the Word became flesh. And over and over again we tell ourselves that. And then we recognize that all the ways in which God's grace continues to to be showered down. Like the older I get, and I know a lot of you still laugh at me, even though I'm 40 now, I feel old, okay, stop. But the older I get, the more I find God's love and grace for me in two things. Through a meal, And through simply waking up in the morning. That every breath that I take is an evidence of God's grace. For he is the one who allows me to take that breath. He is the one who woke me from my slumber. He is the one that held the world together such that I could experience it today. Experience it in its goodness and its difficultness. And God's Provision through food. I mean, Jesus taught us to give, uh, taught us to pray for our daily bread. And so, yeah, I, w- I work a job and I've got money in my account and I can go buy food. But, but, but as Deuteronomy teaches, even the ability to earn food or, or earn a living is a gift from God. So the older I get, like I see God's grace in those two areas. And I could, t- I mean, if we made a list, I mean, come on, yes. On Friday, my kids were crying a lot, and they threw balls in my coffee. I don't know if you already saw that. And yesterday, they played together beautifully. It's grace. This morning, we came together, and we sang. We saw people that we haven't seen in over a week. It's grace. It's all grace. And I think if we can orient our lives around that the grace that God continues to give us that is undeserved. 
I got to imagine that it's going to spill out into other areas of our life, right? Like, it's going to spill out into our interactions with others. It's going to spill out into our relationships. It's going to spill out into our attitudes. It's going to spill out into our willingness to serve. It's going to spill out into our desire to be generous. Like, all of these then become not things that we're doing to try to earn salvation by any means, but all of these become means by which we offer the well-being that God has given us back to God. We have been overtaken by joy because of what Christ has done, by recognizing that Christ himself is our fellowship offering, and so our lives become a well-being offering. Look at my life. Look at how good it is. Look at the things that God has given me, and we offer that back to the Lord. And, and, and here's where I want to close. I want to close with this idea that Jesus is our fellowship offering. Because just in a little bit, we are going to come to the table. So I, I want this picture to be centered in your mind. On the last night that Jesus was with his disciples, he took bread and he gave thanks and he said, take and eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup and he said, this covenant is, is in my blood. In Leviticus 3, we're told that when you take your offering to the, ta- to the altar, that you put some of it up there and you recognize it's God's. And then you take part of that offering and you eat of it. And you do so with friends and family. And Jesus is offered up on the cross for us, for our salvation. And then Jesus says, here, take. Take some of me. Eat. Take my life, this cup that is the new covenant in my blood. This time you get to have some of it because you will get to partake in my life. God has given you something wonderful and God has given you something unique. You get to share in the very life of God. So fellowship with me. Come to my table. You don't have to bring anything. All you have to do is come and receive. Come and receive. Have your covenant with God reaffirmed. Have your covenant with one another reaffirmed. Recognize that you belong to the family of God because of his good prerogative to adopt you as sons and daughters. So come. Give thanks Rejoice. Be at peace. For Christ is our offering. Let's pray. Most holy God, we give you thanks that you have made a way for us to be in relationship with you. We give you thanks that you have covenanted with us because of your deep love. May our hearts be filled with joy and gratitude. May we sing and dance and laugh and rejoice because of all that you have done for us. And may we recognize that 
while it has so much meaning for us as individuals, we do not do it alone. But we stand shoulder to shoulder with, with all of God's redeemed. I pray that our lives would be marked by gratitude. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.